There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Billy Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Twisted Billy. Hey Twisters, what up? Welcome back to Twisted Philly and part two of the Caleb Fairley story. For me, it's been a few days, but for you, it may have only been minutes since you finished part one. And if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen. You won't be totally confused if you don't, but why listen to the ending if you haven't listened to the beginning? That would be like turning to the last few pages of a book to see how it ends before you've read the story, and that sucks. So where did we leave off? I told you the story of Caleb's days in middle school and high school, how he was bullied and tormented, and how those experiences may have shaped the young man he became after he graduated. We talked about his life after graduation, shifting between schools, between jobs, and some run-ins with local police because of an assault charge for groping, and finally working at his mother's new children's clothing store in early September 1995. We also met the Mandarak family, husband James, wife Lisa, and their beautiful 19-month-old daughter, Devin. Lisa and Devin left home on a Sunday afternoon in September to check out a new children's clothing store in Collegeville, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. They'd been gone only a few hours when police in a neighboring town, Upper Marion, received a call that the body of a little girl had been found in a remote section of Valley Forge Park. And that little girl was Devin Mandarak. Lisa Mandarak, her mother, was still missing. Caleb Fairley was working at the store that day when Lisa and Devin stopped in, so we pick up our story while Caleb is at Upper Marion Police Station on Monday, September 11th. The day after Lisa and Devin disappeared, and the day after little Devin was found strangled. Caleb showed up at the police station wearing makeup, which he tried to pass off as something he'd worn the night before while he was at a concert at a club in Philly. After removing the makeup, police saw that his face and forehead were covered in scratches, One of the really twisted things about that makeup is Caleb said something to the police to the effect of, oh, my father said I should put the makeup on because I look like I might have raped somebody. Yeah, I guess that was a little foreshadowing of what the police were about to discover. Caleb tried to pass off his injuries as the result of falling outside the club. Then he said he got the injuries in a mosh pit at the club. And finally, he said that he was covered in scratches because he broke up a fight at his mother's children's clothing store during the afternoon the previous day. Police secured search warrants for both Caleb's home in Upper Marion and his mother's store in Collegeville. And witnesses working at the other stores in the shopping center said that they saw Caleb vacuuming the store both Sunday afternoon after he had closed and then again early Monday morning before the store opened. In Caleb's room, the police found a pretty significant stash of porn, fantasy role-play games, vampire literature and games, and a shirt with an image of a woman being ravaged by vampires that just coincidentally looked like Lisa. In the Collegeville store, there was very little surface evidence. Police took apart the vacuum and found strands of long black hair that had been forcibly removed from someone's head. And they noticed areas of the carpet in the rear of the store that looked as if it had been scrubbed. So they used a special light to examine the carpet, and what this light does is it makes certain substances glow. And police identified two areas of the carpet that needed testing. On one section was Little Devin's saliva, and the other part of the carpet had Caleb's sperm. 
Further tests also showed that fibers from the shirt Caleb wore on Sunday at work were consistent with fibers found on Devin's clothes. So then a search warrant was also issued to examine and search Caleb himself. The medical examiner determined that the abrasions all over his face and his forehead and his hands and his wrists were consistent with fingernail marks. Someone had fought him and they were fighting for their life. Finding Lisa was urgent. Both the Upper Marion and Collegeville Police and Montgomery County District Attorney Michael Marino knew that preserving evidence would be critical in prosecuting Caleb Fairley for both Lisa and Devin's murders. On Monday, September 11th, police across the county searched for Lisa Manderak, but they didn't find her. That night, Caleb's first attorney, Mark Steinberg, said that he could direct authorities to the location of Lisa's body if the prosecutors wouldn't pursue the death penalty. This was an impossible decision. Here's someone who committed a double murder, and these murders were considered premeditated in the sense that once Lisa and Devin were the only patrons in the store, Caleb locked the door so they couldn't leave. And at any point while he was strangling them and they fought back, he could have stopped. It takes about four minutes to strangle an adult, and that's three minutes and 59 seconds that you have to change your mind. So this absolutely would have been a death penalty case. But police had already spent an entire day searching for Lisa without success, and to learn that Caleb had given his attorney the location of her body, it was impossible to say no to that. Not only would prosecutors and investigators be able to gather more evidence against Caleb, Lisa wouldn't be lost and abandoned by herself. She could be reunited with her family. So the DA took the deal and took the death penalty off the table. Caleb was arrested and charged with two counts of murder, abuse of a corpse, and unlawful taking. Now, I'm torn when it comes to death penalty sentences. With this case, it's easy for me to say I'd be okay with the death penalty because there is no doubt Caleb committed these crimes. And as if everything I've shared with you so far isn't enough to convince you, he did something shortly after he was arrested that I know will convince you of his guilt. But what worries me about death sentences is what happens if it's a case of wrongful conviction? There's no way you can overturn an execution. Once news hit about the deal that the DA made, the protests started in earnest. People were picketing the DA's office. They had signs. They started petitions demanding that the DA reinstate the death penalty for Caleb Fairley. Everyone and their brother had an opinion about this case. But none of them were there in that moment when the DA was forced with leaving the death penalty on the table and not know when or even if they would find Lisa Mandarak, plus losing valuable evidence that would ensure a conviction. The protests in suburban Philadelphia over DA Marino's decision about the death penalty were so bad that police were present at Lisa and Devin Mandarak's funeral. Lisa and Devin were buried together on September 16th, six days after their lives were stolen by Caleb Fairley. And the fact that they were buried together was something else I didn't know about this case. Their story is just so deeply sad, and thinking of them buried together as a mother, I just don't even know what to say to that. District Attorney Michael Marino was quoted on September 13th in 1995 as saying, you don't want to give away a death penalty case, but you have to be mindful of the family of the victim. To make closure, you have to find a body. He also said he felt the deal was the right thing to do, to gather enough evidence to put Fairley away for life. Lisa's body was found in a wooded area near a fitness center in an industrial park where Caleb Fairley occasionally went. 
Unlike Devin's body, which was just tossed down a hill like a bag of trash, Lisa had been posed. She was naked with the exception of her black lace blouse that had been pulled over her chest and her long black hair was pulled down over her face and her body was positioned in a sexually suggestive posture. DNA played an enormous role in building the case against Caleb Fairley. If you remember in the first episode, we talked about DNA evidence found in the carpet. I mentioned it again at the top of this episode. Devin's saliva was found in the carpet, as was Caleb's semen, and the long black hairs recovered from the store vacuum cleaner did indeed belong to Lisa Mandarak. There were also stains on the shirt Caleb wore while he was working on Sunday at the clothing store that contained Lisa's DNA. Lisa's fingernails were ripped, they were jagged and broken, and some of them were torn off entirely. Under the nails that did remain were Caleb Fairley's skin cells. Those scratches that he had all over his face and his head were from Lisa fighting. Her family called her a fighter. They said she never would have gone down without a fight for herself and of course for her daughter. And that is what she did. She fought Caleb in the back of that clothing store with everything she had. She was only five foot three and about 120 pounds. She was tiny and lithe and she was just no match for Caleb. I cannot even begin to imagine her terror, not for herself, but for her daughter. God, I I wish this story had a different ending. I wish it had a happier ending, but we all already know that both Lisa and Devin were murdered. If there's one thing that sticks with me about this story, it's the way Caleb's face was torn up. Lisa fought like a maniac with every ounce of strength she had. And even though she couldn't defend herself for her baby girl, she was able to get his DNA under her nails, making sure there would be no doubt who her attacker was. So with all the DNA, the statements from Lisa's husband, and the other shopper at Your Kids and Mine on September 10th, the prosecution was able to paint a picture and a timeline of what happened that afternoon. Lisa and Devin arrived at Your Kids and Mine at about 3.40 p.m. And we know that from the woman who was checking out as they walked in the store based on the timestamp on her receipt. Caleb was immediately attracted to Lisa. She was petite and slender with pale skin and dark raven hair. She was exactly the type of woman that fit his vision of the preternatural fantasies he thought about. When Caleb realized that Lisa and Devin were the only customers in the store, he locked the door making it impossible for them to leave without his permission. Caleb propositioned Lisa and she turned him down and he didn't take that rejection well. Going back to those high school classmates I spoke with, a few of them told me they wouldn't have been surprised if he had never had sex, ever. And they could imagine him losing his shit when Lisa said no to him. So then he assaulted her and he strangled her while she tried to fight him off. Police believe Devin was standing nearby crying. And to stifle her cries after watching her mother be attacked, Caleb fairly strangled Devin as well. At some point after strangling Lisa, he physically assaulted her. And that's what led to the charge of abuse of a corpse. After killing both Lisa and Devin, Caleb loaded them into his car. He drove through Valley Forge Park and dumped Devin, leaving him alone with Lisa and all of his sick, twisted fantasies and then he left Lisa in the woods not far from the store. Every time I did research for this story, I couldn't stop thinking about Lisa. I still can't. I won't be able to after this episode is finished. I've thought about her so much over the last 20 years. We all have. So many of us in suburban Philadelphia were just shocked at how horrific this crime was. 
And I think what is the hardest for me is I can't get images out of my head of what her last moments must have been like. Maybe it's because I'm a mom. I don't know. As a parent, I believe we feel more terror for our children than we do for ourselves. And I also think about how we're raising our girls and boys. Caleb Fairley saw Lisa Mandarak that afternoon, and he thought he was entitled to her. He thought nothing of the pain and grief he was inflicting on her or her child or her husband or their family. He only thought about what he wanted, what he thought he had a right to have, and when that right was denied, he retaliated in the worst, most sadistic way imaginable. And Lisa used whatever strength she had to stand her ground, and you know what, maybe it wasn't enough, but she must have been raised to be a fighter. And these are the things that we need to teach our children. We need to teach our boys they are not entitled to a thing from a woman. And we need to teach our girls that if you're going to go down, you go down fighting. On September 20th, after Caleb Fairley had been in jail only 10 days, he did something very unexpected. A little after 9.30 that morning, Caleb made a phone call. And that phone call was to Assistant District Attorney Bruce Castor because Caleb wanted to own up to what he did. Before that phone call, he never actually confessed. I mean, sure, he told his attorney where they could find Lisa's body, and to me, that's as good as a confession. But his guilty conscience eventually got the better of him, and he wanted to take accountability for his crimes. He also wrote two letters to friends, so contrary to what I read about Caleb and what I was told about him by the people who went to school with him, it would seem as if he did actually have a few friends. In those letters, he talked about being filled with hatred and rage, and he said although he couldn't talk about his crimes, he felt he was where he belonged. In one letter to his friend Leanne Geyer from Pottstown, Fairley said, You trusted me to watch your house, and I've even watched your children once. I hope that you don't think you were ever in danger from me. And then he said, I'm sorry I hurt you. So here's a man that you let watch your children, and... This is absolutely no judgment at all of his friend Leanne. She didn't know that he was capable of these things, but like how friggin' freaked out would you be after realizing a man you let watch your home and your children murdered a young mother and her daughter? Interestingly enough, Leanne was a witness for both the prosecution and the defense. Speaking of prosecution and defense, let's talk about Caleb's trial. In November 1995, Thomas Egan, who was Caleb's second attorney, yeah, that first guy realized what a dog this case was, and he bolted. Thomas Egan said he was considering a defense of insanity. Defense? What defense? Your client made a deal, and even though it was with another attorney, that deal was to take the death penalty off the table if Caleb told everyone where Lisa's body could be found. So doesn't that mean he sort of pled guilty, even if it was by default? No, Twisters, it does not. Caleb never actually said anything to the police himself about Lisa's body. It was his attorney who told police where Lisa's body could be found. So Caleb actually pled not guilty. Not guilty to murder, not guilty to unlawful abduction, not guilty to abuse of a corpse, not guilty to strangling the fucking life out of Lisa and Devin. Like, I just can't even. And he called the assistant district attorney to take accountability for what he did. So... How does that not negate him pleading not guilty? That's why I'm not an attorney or a judge or working in any capacity in the legal or judicial system, because I would be losing my shit entirely too often. 
It took two months for Egan to circle back with the court and inform them and the prosecutor that he would not be pursuing an insanity defense. And that's because four separate Montgomery County doctors who tested and interviewed Caleb were unable to find him insane. Although I think anyone who does twisted, heinous shit like this has to be out of their fucking mind. But that doesn't necessarily mean they pass the textbook definition of insanity. They only pass my definition of insanity. And speaking of insanity, the story of Lisa and Devin's murder, like the coverage of it was just insane. It was a constant news story on TV, in the papers, in Philly papers and local township papers. It made national news, national papers. Yeah, we did actually have the internet back then, but a lot of us were still getting our news in print. Caleb's attorney actually wanted a change of venue, but the trial was still held in Montgomery County. Jurors, though, were selected from Dauphin County, which is the county where Harrisburg sits, and then they were bussed into Norristown. Thomas Egan also tried to have the DNA suppressed. Seriously? Are you out of your mind? Like, maybe this guy should have been ruled insane, but what else was he going to do? He had to provide some sort of a defense. He also tried to suppress the call Caleb made to assistant district attorney, but the DA didn't need that call because they had so much DNA and other evidence against Caleb, so they didn't even fight to put it in. But, and there is always a but, Twisters, I guess Caleb's attorney Thomas Egan came to his senses at some point because by the time the case went to trial, Caleb pled guilty. So technically, this guy doesn't really have to provide a defense. He just has to convince a jury to find Caleb guilty of third-degree manslaughter versus first-degree murder. And that wasn't easy. An entire cartful of evidence was wheeled into the courtroom. It had Devin's clothing and Lisa's clothing. It had Caleb's vampire t-shirt with the picture that looked like Lisa. There were photos of Devin when she was found in Valley Forge Park. Photos from birthday parties. Photos of Lisa where she was found. There was also a photo of Caleb the day after the murder when his face was covered in scratches. Upper Marion detectives testified about showing Caleb a photo of Devin from her first birthday party the day that they were interrogating him, and he broke down, shaking and crying. Prosecutors used all of the evidence to help tell the tale of Lisa and Devin's last hours between 3.30 and 5.30 p.m. And the defense, well, there wasn't much of a defense other than Thomas Egan calling character witnesses on behalf of Caleb Fairley. Assistant DA Bruce Castor began his closing argument by standing before the jury in silence. And, you know, one thing that I love about the DAs in suburban Philadelphia, at least from the cases I've covered for true crime so far, is that they've all really got some balls. So he stands there in silence for a full minute not speaking. And then he says to the jury, I'm sure there's all kinds of questions running through your minds why I stood here not speaking. So he told the jury he stood there for a full minute in silence because it takes four times that long to strangle a person to death. On April 25, 1996, the jury took just three hours to find Caleb Fairley guilty on two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of abuse of a corpse, and one count unlawful taking. Caleb's sentencing hearing was about three months later on July 24th, and he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. Shortly after his sentencing hearing, Caleb filed a motion for a new trial, and that was denied on November 18, 1996. But the kid tried. I'll give him that. His reasons were many. 
First, he disputed that evidence should have been suppressed because the police didn't have properly executed search warrants. Well, that objection was denied because the affidavit of probable cause was in order and properly executed. Then he contested the validity of DNA evidence and questioned the reliability of PCR evidence. I can't say I completely understand the concept of PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction, other than to say it's a technique for amplifying segments of DNA. Because he was questioning the validity of the DNA, this prompted a Fry hearing to determine whether or not the scientific evidence should have been considered admissible. The state established that the PCR method of DNA profiling used in Caleb Fairley's case was accepted as a reliable and accurate source defined by the Fry hearing record. His third issue was over the photographs that were admitted into evidence. Caleb objected that they were inflammatory and should not have been used. Well, Caleb, maybe you shouldn't have fucking killed a beautiful young mother and her 19-month-old child, and you wouldn't have to worry about whether or not photos of their dead bodies were considered inflammatory. Here's what he objected to. He objected to the two black and white photographs of Lisa Mandarak's body because she was naked. She was naked because you did that to her. In 1985, the Supreme Court determined that black and white photographs of victims, even if they were naked, were not inflammatory. Plus, the jury was properly cautioned and warned about the contents of the photographs. So, sorry, Caleb, survey says, eh. He also objected to two photos of Devin. One was her autopsy photo, which was adjusted to hide any blood or anything that would make it inflammatory. But there was bruising on her nose that was important to show the jury because it supported the prosecution's claims that Caleb pinched her nose to cut off her air while strangling her. The other photo was from Devin's first birthday party, the same photo that the Upper Marion detective showed Caleb during his interview when he broke down. These objections were denied as well, and ultimately all of this led to the denial for a request for a new trial. So for the next 16 years, Caleb didn't say boo to a goose. There were no more appeals, nada. But there were a lot of other developments associated with the case over that time. A few months after the murders, Caleb's mom, Ruth Fairley, opened another children's clothing store, this time in Audubon, Pennsylvania, which isn't far from Collegeville, and it's a little closer to Upper Marion. Yeah, she opened a children's clothing store. Like, who the hell would shop there? As you can guess, it eventually closed. In March 1998, Caleb's father, James Fairley, made headlines when he was arrested on charges of dispensing drugs without a prescription. Yeah, his pharmacist father. So for over a year, he was providing Darvon to a woman in a nearby town without a prescription. He was giving her the drugs for money. Then, when she couldn't afford to pay out of pocket, she paid out in something else. He started exchanging the pills for sex. He was giving this woman, like, 100 pills a week for a year. How could you even consume 100 pills a week? She had to have been taking over, I don't know, like 15 Darvon a day. How do you function? James Fairley was found guilty in July of that year, and he was supposed to serve between six months to two years, but he was eligible for work release. And then, since he lost his pharmacy license, he was hoping that he could keep the storefront open just without the pharmacy. But again, why the hell would anyone shop there? In June 1998, hundreds of volunteers who had worked for two years on fundraising came together to build a castle and heart-shaped slides for what became a memorial park in honor of Lisa and Devin. After hearing about the murders, a Limerick resident named Ginger Childs asked the Limerick Board of Supervisors to donate land from the township's open space for a playground. 
The township donated 52 acres for a playground and ball fields, and this is one of the most beautiful spaces for children to play in that I've ever seen. I'll be posting a link and pictures from Mandarak Park on my Twitter page and in the Twisted Philly discussion group on Facebook. And I need to give a Twisted Philly what up to my junior high friend Mindy for telling me about the park. I never knew about it, and seeing something that beautiful as a remembrance to Lisa and Devin adds just a little bit of light to this story. Earlier that same year in 1998, the Mandarak family sued Caleb's parents for wrongful death. Ruth and Jim Fairley were ordered to pay $1.6 million, which went to Lisa's husband James and her mother Lorraine McKay. The Fairley's attorney argued the settlement, stating that the store's $1 million insurance policy should have been enough compensation. But the Mandarak's attorney argued there should be compensation for each murder, specifically $800,000 for Lisa and for Devin. So as a result of the settlement, James Mandarak dropped a suit that he had against the shopping center for wrongful death. Initially, his attorneys argued the shopping center failed to provide appropriate security to ensure safety of their patrons. But the more egregious failure really was on the part of Caleb's parents. I mean, they knew their son had issues, and maybe they didn't realize how deeply his demons ran, but he'd already been arrested for assault, and that assault was sexual in nature. He never should have been allowed to work in their store, like especially not alone. You may think this is the end of our tale, but not quite yet. I told you the last time we heard from Caleb was in November 1998 when his multiple appeals were denied. Well, fast forward to 2012 and Caleb again appealed for a new trial. This time, his appeal was based on changes in laws for sentencing of juveniles. So even though Judge William Carpenter, yep, that's the same guy who presided over the initial trial, and Caleb's court-appointed attorney declared his request for appeal was without merit, Caleb filed a petition with the state superior court. He requested his two life sentences be vacated and he receive a new trial or at a minimum he receive a new sentencing hearing. And the argument he made for this was the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling on June 25, 2012. And that was a change in sentencing that ruled mandatory life sentences without parole for anyone who committed murder before they were 18 were a form of cruel and unusual punishment. Caleb argued that it didn't matter he was 21 because the appellate court ruled a person's biological process is typically incomplete until they reach his or her mid-20s. So Caleb may have been 21 when he committed the murders, but he was only about a month away from his 22nd birthday. So what are you saying, Caleb? I mean, you were already 22, practically. So in two more years, you would have had some major biological change that would have eradicated all of the hatred and rage and would have prevented you from murdering Lisa and Devin? I doubt it. That is an enormous crock of shit. And that's why both your court-appointed attorney and Judge Carpenter not only found your appeal to be without merit, they called it frivolous. Caleb was 38 when he filed the appeal in 2012, and I have no information about whether or not he actually went forward with the petition at state superior court or at the federal level. I've emailed the DA's office, I emailed journalists from multiple papers and online news sources who reported on Caleb's appeal, asking if they knew anything else about what other steps he might have taken, and no one has responded to me. I am either too pushy or not pushy enough. And I'm guessing it's probably the former. And Twisters, that is the end of our tale of Caleb Fairley and Lisa and Devin Mandarak. For now. I will try to do a follow-up episode if I ever get an update about Caleb's appeal. I didn't do any what-ups at the start of this episode because I wanted to quickly jump back into the story. 
So if you don't mind, I'll do a few right now. My first what up is to Michael Marino, the district attorney who took the death penalty off the table so police could recover Lisa Mandarak's body. He took a shitload of heat and grief for that decision. It's so easy for me to sit here behind my microphone and my computer and tell you how I think I would have reacted if I was one of Lisa's family members, or how I think I would react if this decision was being made about someone in my family, or, you know, God forbid, my child. I would want her back as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably want someone like Caleb Fairly dead too. But if it was a choice between one or the other, I would take the quick recovery of my family member. My next what ups go to the people who were willing to talk to me about Caleb. You may have noticed I didn't use anyone's names. I didn't even use gender pronouns. And that's because in our community, people still talk about this case. And I didn't want anyone local listening to this episode and then giving shit to anyone who talked to me. So thank you and what up to my anonymous sources. What up to Ginger Childs, the woman who envisioned something beautiful growing out of the story of Lisa and Devin's murder. Yes, there were hundreds of people who worked for years to make Mandarak Park a reality, but it started with one person who had one idea. And my last what up, and this is a tough one, goes to Lisa Mandarak. Lisa, I think you are a badass boss bitch. Among certain circles of friends, Calling somebody that phrase is one of the highest levels of praise that we can give. And if anyone is offended by me calling a murder victim a badass boss bitch, I'm sorry, and you can go scratch. Lisa, you went out fighting like a warrior. And unfortunately, you were facing the devil. I don't know the reason why it was you and Devin that day, and I don't know that any of us ever will. But I hope and pray that if I or any woman I know, any woman I don't know, like any woman anywhere, I pray if we ever find ourselves in a situation like you found yourself in that we don't go down without a fight. God bless you, Lisa. God bless you and little Devin. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters. <laughs>